0: You're listening to The Quince
1: Podcast.
0: Three weeks after the Taliban captured Afghanistan, they announced a new acting government who will be running the country, which will now be known as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. However, the announcement also rang alarm bells around the world as the cabinet was far from quote-unquote inclusive and representative as the Taliban earlier asserted. With no women in the cabinet and the presence of only three minorities, the entire cabinet comprises of Taliban leaders and loyalists, some of whom are global terrorists and are listed on the US and the UN watch list and also include members of the Islamic terrorist mafia, the Haqqani Network. The inclusion of the Haqqani Network also indicates that Pakistan played a role in hand-picking the cabinet members since the country has been home to the terror mafia for the past four decades and shares close ties with Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence, ISI. In today's episode, we will discuss the portfolios of the new Taliban government, the involvement of Pakistan, and how should India, who has engaged with Afghanistan closely for the past two decades, and the world, should engage with the new regime. For this, we spoke with former Indian Ambassador to Afghanistan and Secretary West of the Ministry of External Affairs, Vivek Karju. Get tuned in to The Big Story, the podcast where we dissect the headline-making news for you, and I'm your host, Immat. Unsurprisingly and contrary to the expectations of the acting government in Afghanistan, the new Taliban government is a far cry from being labelled as inclusive or representative. There are no women in the new cabinet, and there is not even a mention of a Ministry of Women Affairs, which was a functioning body in the previous administration. There are also no members from the previous Ashraf Ghani government in the new cabinet. There is also very less representation of minorities, with only three ethnic minorities included. They are Abdul Salam Hanafi, who is the second deputy head of the government, Kari Fasul Huddin, who has been appointed as the chief of army staff, and Kari Deen Hanif, the minister of economy. To make matters more grim, 17 out of the 33 new cabinet members are on the UN terror list, starting with the new Prime Minister himself, Mullah Hassan Akhund. The cabinet also reflects that the old Taliban has survived the past two decades and will continue to rule. Now, Akhund, who heads the Taliban's hardline leadership council, Rehbari Shura, is, according to the UN, one of the 30 original Taliban. He has previously served as Foreign Minister and Deputy Prime Minister in Taliban's first government. Reporting to him as the first Deputy Prime Minister is Taliban's co-founder Abdul Ghani Baradar. He has been the face of the negotiations and was the one to sign the Doha agreement with the US. Baradar was expected to lead the Taliban 2.0 but has apparently been edged out. Abdul Salam Hanafi, who was also part of the Doha negotiation team, will also be reporting to Akhund as the second Deputy Prime Minister. The other two members of the old Taliban are Amir Khan Motaki as Acting Foreign Minister and Sher Mohammed Stanikzai as Deputy Foreign Minister. Former Indian diplomat Vivek Kaju believes that the new cabinet is a mix of the old and new Taliban, primarily due to the internal rivalry and individual concerns that the Taliban leadership held.
1: My uh, impression is that the Taliban had uh, difficulty in forming this uh, administration because uh, they were having problems in balancing the different interests within the movement. These interests can be roughly put in uh, two baskets. One are, of course, individual uh, issues, and uh, the second are tribal concerns, or tribe arising out of affinities and rival. So that is reflected in this government formation. So obviously there's been a lot of give and take, and it was not easy for them to come to this, this arrangement. And, and perhaps, uh, or rather, it is most likely that the Pakistanis played a role and uh, the fact that uh, just before all this was announced, uh, General Faiz Hamid, DG ISI was in Kabul and camped in Kabul also shows that the Pakistanis played a major role in this in this government formation. Now, once this kind of, of, uh, of a situation arises, then it, it's almost impossible to include others. And apart from that, I don't think that the Taliban ideologically were in any mood for an inclusive government which really meant including people from the old system, from the Afghan Republic in their fold, in governance. And uh, I think it was highly unlikely that uh, they would include such people. So that is reflected in the government. And let us not forget that this government has been formed after a very quick and successful military campaign. Now, uh, the nature of the government is for all to see. It consists of people who are on the terrorist list, international terrorist list. And hence, uh, there is a great awareness about them. And many important countries have said that uh, such the a government is not acceptable because uh, it does not represent the, the diversity of Afghanistan. And that's true because it does represent Pashtun domination.
0: But if the Taliban is going to be headed by the old Taliban leaders, is there any indication that old rules will be making a comeback? Unfortunately, yes. What also has been included in this new cabinet is a ministry to implement the militant group's grim interpretation of the Islamic law. The ministry is called the Ministry of Propagation of Virtue and Prevention of Vice. This ministerial body, which the Human Rights Watch has called as a notorious symbol of arbitrary abuses, was reportedly the face of the Taliban during its regime in the 90s. It was disbanded after the Taliban fell in 2001. And the Taliban may be trying to hide its return, given that in the English version of the list of new cabinet appointments released by the Taliban, it was the only ministry left out. And the Taliban is leaving it out for a good reason, since it is going to bring back fearful memories for Afghanis. According to a Washington Post report, its return will lead to an increase in religious policing and will be the body which the public will encounter the most. Forces of this ministry reportedly caught and beat people for listening to music, dancing, having beards too thin and even kite flying. Squads of these ministerial forces also reportedly restricted girls from attending school and took women out of their workplace and the public eye. Vivek Kaju believes that it is not surprising that the new regime will employ old tactics of governance and breaks down how the old regime used to govern
1: the taliban regime at that stage was only recognized by pakistan saudi arabia and the united arab emirates uh, the other the the international community virtually shunned them and that was because they practiced a very uh, a very regressive form of the sharia and this applied both uh, to gender issues and to the administration of criminal justice so uh, the international community found these practices completely abhorrent. On gender issues, for example, women were not allowed uh, to, be, uh, to go to colleges. Higher education was forbidden to them. They were not even allowed access to, to uh, hospitals or to be treated by male doctors. If uh, there were stories current that if there was only a male doctor and there was a woman in, uh, in dire need of medical attention, She was not allowed to get that medical attention if only a male doctor was there. So this kind of a thing was a a practice was was unacceptable to anyone. Apart from uh, the infliction of punishments, uh, including executions, etc. in stadiums. So that attracted a lot of attention. And at that stage, it also seemed that the Taliban just simply didn't care. And that was the time when Mullah Omar, who was, the, in a sense, the founding, uh, the founding figure of the movement, was in charge. I'm not surprised that they've kept these government structures. Perhaps it could be to assure their carders or the more hardliners among them that uh, they are not diluting their ideology and their theology. But it remains to be seen how uh, they put all these practices on the ground. The reports that have are coming in are certainly not encouraging. But uh, these are early days and, and we really have to see because if they need financial flows to maintain the kind of state structures which have been created over the last 20 years, they need money. And uh, they can only come from uh, international financing institutions and Western government. The Chinese uh, are not known unless they suddenly change costs. they are not known to open their purse strings to support budgets and other things. so we really have to wait and watch the most
0: significant takeaway from the new cabinet is that pakistan played a big hand in picking the cabinet members and all the indications for it point to the inclusion of the terror mafia group in the cabinet the haqqani network the Haqqani Network is a widespread Islamist mafia group, which enjoys close ties to Al-Qaeda and also to Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence ISI. Its inclusion in the cabinet was predictable, given that ISI Chief Lt. Gen. Faiz Hamid was present in Kabul to reportedly meet the Taliban leadership just days before the cabinet announcement. The network is headed by Sirajuddin Haqqani, who is a global terrorist and has a $10 million bounty on his head by the United States. He's wanted for questioning in the January 2008 attack on a hotel in Kabul that killed six people including an American and the attempted assassination of former Afghanistan President Hamid Karzai in 2008. Sirajuddin has been appointed as the new interior minister and will be in control of the Afghan National Police, counter-terrorism and counter-narcotics in the country. Now, the Haqqani network may also spell out trouble for India since the group was responsible for the 2008 Indian embassy bombing in Kabul where a senior diplomat and a military official was killed. In our previous episodes, we have taken a deep dive into the Taliban's implications on India. If you have missed any of those episodes, you can find a link to them in our show notes. The Haqqani are also reportedly behind the attacks on the Indian construction workers in Afghanistan from 2009 to 2012. So, given the history which India has with the Haqqani network, how should it go about engaging with the new cabinet? Mr. Kaju believes that no matter how sour the relationship has been in the past, there should always be an effort to engage with Afghanistan given India's long-standing relation with its people.
1: India has begun the engagement with the Taliban. After all, that uh, engagement began when our uh, ambassador uh, received uh, Stanagzai, who is now the deputy foreign minister. This happened in Doha. It could not have happened without the approval of the highest authority in the land, in our our country. It was a very sensitive issue, and surely his approval would have been taken. Now... uh, the question now is uh, how and in what manner we pursue that engagement. Diplomatic recognition is a completely different, and it's premature to talk of diplomatic recognition, even if if they formed a, what they call a caretaker administration. So, uh, uh, I think that is this some distance away. But as far as engagement is concerned, uh, howsoever obnoxious we find. Many of the members of this uh, of this caretaker administration, I think some form of engagement uh, uh, should be there. Otherwise, we would leave the entire field open to countries that are hostile to us. And in diplomacy, you try to explore spaces to pursue your interests. This and by that, I mean that despite the close connections between Pakistan and this and the Taliban administration, caretaker administration, and the Chinese who are wanting to make a foray, they've given a loan. Apparently, though, uh, though the nature of that loan is raises questions, would like us to be inactive. The question is, should we be inactive? This doesn't mean endorsing what the Taliban stand for. Far from Uh, engagements also give an opportunity to reiterate red lines. I mean, that was what was done when Deepak Mittal, our ambassador in Doha, met Stanislav. He told him of our security concern.
0: A day after the cabinet announcement came in, the Afghanistan embassy in Delhi issued a statement condemning the Taliban for its quote-unquote so-called cabinet as illegitimate and unjustifiable. It further said that the cabinet will result in undermining Afghanistan's political, ethnic and social diversity, lead to increased tensions and undermine the prospect of a comprehensive and lasting peace in the country. Now, there has been no official response from New Delhi on the new Taliban cabinet so far, but the diplomatic corridors in India show that it is not the only country concerned about the new cabinet. Just hours after the cabinet announcement came in, National Security Advisor Ajit Dovol on 8 September met Russia's Secretary of Security Council, General Nikolai Patrushev, According to the Indian Express, CIA Chief William J. Burns was also in these meetings but has not issued a response of the outcome. A recent statement from the Taliban office outlines a new regime as, quote unquote, committed to all international laws and treaties, resolutions, and commitments that are not in conflict with the Islamic law and Afghanistan's national values. But given the track record of the Taliban in the past and the members of the new cabinet, how should the international community go about engaging with this new leadership? Vivek Kaju,
1: I don't think, uh, howsoever unsavory these people are, and despite all the uh, the uh, scepticism about them and uh, the unhappiness about them, I think uh, most countries will engage this administration. Otherwise, what is the what is the alternative? Even if if you want to extend humanitarian assistance, and there is every indication that even the Western countries who have said they will not recognise. This administration, they want, they are insisting on an inclusive government, uh, which is uh, which in, inclusive of the diversity of Afghanistan, will engage these people, if for nothing else, to ensure that humanitarian assistance keeps flowing. Now, they may ensure that that humanitarian assistance flows through NGOs, etc. But even for that purpose, you've got to engage the person who is in control on the ground. And these are the people who are in control. I think the international community in the major powers, uh, that's the western powers, will judge them by their conduct, by how they behave, not so much by uh, who's in it. The, the, and they will keep, the, keep various swords of democracies hanging over their heads.
0: What is a clear indication from the quote-unquote caretaker government which Taliban has installed is that not much has changed. It remains to be seen if the Peloton Group does honour its promises on amnesty, inclusivity and representation. If you like listening to this episode, please subscribe to The Big Story for episodic updates. We are available on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Geos7, and most of the other popular podcast streaming platforms. For other podcasts, please log on to the Quint website and for any feedback, please shoot an email to podcast at thequint.com. Thanks for listening.
1: Log on to the Quints website and check out our other podcasts.